Welcome to the Admin Admin Podcast, episode 92, a podcast for IT professionals. Hi, I'm John. I'm Stu. And I'm Jerry. In this episode, we talk about puppets and configuration management. Talk about unit testing bash scripts. And we also talk about the differences between cloud native services and infrastructure as a service. So, without further ado, let's get on with the show. And so, uh, here we are again. Unfortunately, this time we are without an Al. He's had some stuff that's going on and so hasn't been able to join us here tonight. Up on the docket first this week, Stu said he's been talking a little bit about um, some stuff he's been doing with Puppet. So, uh, Stu, do you want to bring us up to speed with what you're going on with? Yep. So, um, recently I changed jobs and they, for their config management system, uh, use Puppet, which... Before, I've worked in places that have used SaltStack and Ansible, but never anywhere um, with Puppet. So, um, yeah, a bit of a new one on me in this one. So, But in general, it's actually it's quite a nice system. But the syntax, if you are used to Ansible and SaltStack, both of them are YAML-based. Um, so it means that, you know, it's kind of human-readable, or at least, you know, a lot of things use um, YAML nowadays, so you get used to the way it looks. Uh, Puppet looks nothing like that. So it's um, based on Ruby, the syntax at least anyway, and the it uses agents like SaltStack and like Chef. And again, they use Ruby as well, whereas it also has a central server, and the central server uses Ruby. It now uses Clojure, which is based on Java. And yeah, as I say, if you come from a Ruby background, it looks very, very similar to um, the way you do it in that. However, I have spent about 10 minutes in the past looking at Ruby code and going, that looks interesting, a bit like Python, but never had to use it. So coming into it new was a very interesting experience. But overall, there's a lot that you recognize from some of the, from using Ansible's salt stack. And I think... Because Puppet has been around since the early 2000s, you start to see some of the similarities, uh, but also some of the things that I don't want to say Ansible and SaltStack have done better, but you can see where they've gone. Puppet does it like this. We will we will try it slightly differently. So one of the main things I noticed is the agents, you're relying on the agents contacting the server to then do a com- configuration run. Um, so it means that usually set it to a interval to come back to the server and just say, what do I need to do? So, you know, if it's install a package, if it's to update the contents of a file, um, whatever it is, but it's reliant on the agent making that contact. If the agent doesn't make any contact, then nothing happens at all. And the server doesn't know about it. The server's almost like, I don't want to say like a web server, but similar in the sense that it's just sat there waiting for things to contact it rather than knowing um, what's there. Whereas something like SaltStack, they have agents which are there at all times and there is a constant communication going back and forth to you know, be able to say, um, I know this agent's up, I know this agent's down. And um, whereas Puppet doesn't have that. What it does mean, and it's something that I've slightly struggled with in the past with some things, is if your host isn't always up, it doesn't matter in Puppet land because you can say, bring that up, get its configuration. And then if you need to turn it off, you can turn it off and there's no problems there. Whereas like SaltStack will complain that the uh, that it's not there anymore. And if you use something like Ansible with an inventory file that includes this house, it's going to time out on that house because it's not there anymore. And, you know, obviously you can customize it to not have it in the inventory anymore. But as I say, Puppet doesn't have that to begin with. It doesn't have the concept of these hosts must be up for me to configure them. But yeah, overall, it's an interesting system. And so far, I'm finding it a little more difficult to work with but it's more because I'm trying to get information about hosts. So one of the things I've been trying to do recently is get a audit of all the firewall rules we apply. And because the because the central server doesn't have a way of reaching out to the agents, you've got to rely on the agents that it knows about, or you can install something called Puppet DB, which essentially is a Puppet, the agents themselves, when they contact um, the Puppet server, um, the central server for it, 
it will then populate the puppet DB with the last known facts and the last known states of things. So it means that if you do need to query something, you're actually querying a database on the central server rather than querying the nodes in real time. So yeah, as I say, it's a little bit different in thinking, but overall, you know, if you used to, if you know the overall concepts with config management, like, you know, potentially using agents, managing centrally, you know, templating, using variables so that, every, um, you know, everything's consistent. It doesn't feel a huge amount different from some from some of the others. Like, you know, as I say, salt stack's probably the biggest comparison for me because they both use agents, whereas Ansible doesn't. But again, in that case, it's just different enough, but also similar enough that it's not too big of a jump. And um, so what I did recently to try and train myself on it was to take something I already knew, which um, I've mentioned it before that, you know, I like Prometheus and I like HashiCorp's console for discovering hosts with uh, monitoring agents running on them. So I decided I knew how to do it in Salt Stack. I've got it on my home network using Ansible. The way I would learn it would be to do it in Puppet and just recently done a blog post on it. But, you know, more importantly, it was the way I found how to learn it. And yeah, as I say, some differences, but not big enough that it's, you know, it's it's a massive jump and you can't, you, you know, if you know one, it's going to be really difficult to know the other. It's just more of a, it's almost like a different dialect to config management. You look at it and go, it feels slightly alien, but it is in, it's not, not too far off so you can actually get used to it so yeah it's been an interesting experience so far so for me uh, puppet was the first config management tool like came across really other than uh, sort of uh, homebrewed uh, bash scripts that people had written and also kind of the first programming language i'd i'd started to get fluent in as well so this was before I had any concept of things like variables and data structures and things like that. So, yeah, I did a lot of work with it. I did my my, my first uh, almost, you know, sysadmin, sysadmin error that almost got me fired <laughs> with it. <laughs> and uh, yeah, so it's it's got a kind of uh, kind of, and it also it introduced me into this whole sort of cloud engineering devopsy world that i'm currently in so yeah it's got got quite a it's quite it, it was quite important to me i haven't looked at it for uh seven or eight years now though yeah likewise i, I just had a quick poke around my uh my blog and uh, i've got a single blog post from 2014 where i went to a user group in uh, just down the road from me and uh was talking to them about the wonders of, of vagrant and puppet so clearly, at some point in 2014, I was I was I was well into my puppet, mm-hmm. uh, and then migrated off to Ansible. Probably not yeah. too long after that, mm. I got emphatically told not to use it around that sort of time. <laughs> <laughs> you were told not to use puppet. Yeah. Was that because you'd, you'd you'd just made a big cock up? Yeah, that was in in the company I'd, I'd been working. <laughs> in. Yeah, I mean, some other thoughts on it are, I mean, it's agent based in in a similar way to Salt Stack, but it, it, you kind of the agent makes its own decisions about in some ways about how to configure the machine. Yeah. Um, whereas um, something like Ansible is a lot more declarative, if you like, yeah. you have to say, you know, configure this file, you know, do this thing, put this, this variable into this module here. Whereas puppet, it, it's almost, it, it can be a lot simpler. The code can be a lot simpler in some, in, in some respects depending on what you're doing to to achieve the same thing uh, I, I found that with salt stack a bit as well actually the code is is very kind of sparse a lot of the time uh, compared yeah. to an, something like ansible yeah well the one of the other things i did find with puppet as well is um it's that there's a concept of um ordering and dependencies and one of the things i did find when i was building this as say the prometheus and console stuff is some of the actions were happening at the same time, which meant that you'd be trying to install a package and put the configuration file in it and start the service. And depending on which completed first, it would pass or fail. So you ended up needing to think about the order that you wanted to do things. So, you know, if you until it's installed, there's no directory to put the config in yet, or there's no users that's got it. So it's 
Whereas something like Ants... You're saying do this, then do this, then do this. Yeah, yeah exactly. I mean, you can do stuff in parallel with Ansible, but for the most part, it, it does tend to be a bit more task, then task, then task. Salt Stack, I don't... I've never found that same issue other than, um, you know, sometimes saying, you know, if this has changed, then do this. It doesn't seem to be the same way. I don't know whether it has its own dependency map or something internally to be able to do things. I don't know. Um, Because I know it can do certain things at the same time, but it never seems to fail on, you know, I need to install this, then do this, then start the service. But I also didn't find SaltStack was um, any slower than I found Puppet so far. So that was one of the problems I was having for quite a while. I was starting to just come to the end of writing my blog post and then find actually half of this doesn't work right um, when I install it on a Debian machine. When Whereas when I was doing it on, um, it was on Rocky Linux. So, you know, I've been playing around with that recently and feels a lot like CentOS, weirdly enough. Um, but um, yeah, I was doing it on that. Anything that was um, Red App based, so I was doing it on Cent, uh, sorry, on Rocky Linux, doing it on Alma Linux. They completed fine with the same set of actions because I'd just say, you know, if that there's sort of it, this, the facts within Puppet and it's similar to, you know, grains within Salt and again, facts within um, Ansible. And it would be OS family Red Hat. Um, you install this repository, OS family, um, sorry, yeah, OS family Debian based, at which point Ubuntu and Debian would match that. But other than that, there was no difference between the tasks. And as I say, the Red Hat based ones, it seemed to install quick enough for there to not be a dependency issue. And then when I went back to try some of my code on a Debian one, all of a sudden it didn't work anymore because it was installing it in the wrong order or it hadn't updated the app repository. So the console version was um, from about three or four years ago from when it was last put into the Debian archives and things like that. So, yeah, it's it, you've got to think a little bit more in terms of dependencies, I've found, whereas, as I say, Antwon Salt Stack, I've never... Other than saying, you know, this is completed, therefore trigger this. You know, if this file has changed, then you do this. If it hasn't, then you don't do this. Whereas this one, it's literally the ordering of you've got to do this before you do this this task kind of thing. And yeah, that's the only thing I found a bit of a weird one to deal with um, compared to some of the other ones. I think because the agent, the puppet agent, make, as I was saying, makes its own decisions, which which are sometimes wrong, but it was still completely wrong without failing. It, it's been fun it's been interesting and you know i'm always up for learning new technologies so you know a, another thing you know add another string to my bow of conflict management the only one i'm missing now really is chef now i've worked with the other ones but yeah it's it, it's going to take some getting used to to get comfortable with it but you know i'm at a level now where i can get by in it and uh yeah hopefully in a couple of years i'll you know start to get in a similar level to where i was with salt stack I wouldn't mind getting into salt stack a bit. All this talk of salt, salt, because I I did uh, some work for a client with it, and a tiny bit of work with another client, and yeah, it just seemed really good. Uh, it seemed seemed really just the you know similar enough in in the kind of uh, YAML code to Ansible uh, and and using Ginger and so on, um, uh, but different enough and and really quick. That was the thing that 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 seemed yeah. to. Uh, that, that jumped out at me was that it was just quick to to get things done um, because the because it's agent based. Yeah, it's the one thing that I've not seen anywhere else, um, and I could be wrong on this one, but I've not seen it in Puppet. I don't believe I've seen it in Ansible. Is the whole being able to template the actual task itself using Ginger or you know whatever language you want at that point to be able to template the task to say generate this amount of tasks based upon a variable rather than you know. You're doing a task and you're looping it, but it's not quite the same as the entire task itself is templated. So, you know, you could say, if this variable exists, then you want to create this directory, um, but potentially multiple times or potentially multiple files named based upon a list you've got. And I've not seen that in anything else. And that's one of the things in SaltStack that just initially I didn't see the power of that and then yeah when i started building some of the uh, prometheus stuff um about a year ago is it now yeah it would, would have been a prometheus stuff at um my uh place i was working at then and yeah just the power of being able to say that the, for these exporters just look at this list and then create the config for it the task was dynamically created about 15 times for each of the exporters so yeah it's just that in itself was just power you know power i'd not seen in anything else can't you also do things like generating variables with a loop, that that kind of thing? 
it is possible yes we didn't do much of that but it, again it is possible to do things like that in salt stack so yeah it's I've, i think you know it, it's it's the whole thing you know sometimes the power can be a bit overwhelming and you know you can also use it to do some very bad things um if you're not careful but yeah overall um salt stack so far is probably at least on a level with ansible as my favorite to work with and some some days i prefer it so yeah that's uh, puppet i don't know if i'll ever get there but yeah it, it's still an enjoyable thing to use yeah. you've mentioned about um uh, a couple of bits of pieces about ansible just wanted to pick up on before got too far out of loop you mentioned about the parallelism in ansible being something that you can kind of make happen are you talking about because you can loop across multiple hosts mm. and and those so when you've got a task that's touching say seven different hosts it will do each one of those it will you can do anywhere from one to all of those hosts in one go yeah is that the is that the sort of parallelism you're talking about or are you talking about because you can background tasks as well with with ansible can't you yeah it was it was the idea of um tasks happening on the same host at the same time i i had a feeling i'd seen about it before but i didn't know if um yeah I, honestly i've not used it before so i didn't know if it was actually 100 percent possible so i've i've done some of that and basically what you end up doing is just starting a task and registering it and then you call back to that task that that task later to see whether it's finished so you can do some backgrounding but it's not it's it's not that it's it's not impossible to do um but it doesn't look very pretty and it's um it can take it can be a bit complex to do yeah so that was one thing you mentioned about being able to dynamically create tasks in salt based on yeah. using ginger you you can do something similar to that with ansible where you include a task based on whether or not you need something and then have you know optional yes no's for all your execute this particular function if this value set which obviously is not as dynamic and flexible as being able to literally write your entire playbook from you know ginger but um uh, but the other thing that uh, Jerry mentioned was about creating a variable from another variable. I think that was what you were saying, Jerry. Is that well, right? Well, it's kind of looping through a variable. So you can you can say this variable. So say it's like a list of lists. So in YAML, that would be prefixed by a, a hyphen uh, enclosed in curly brackets, if, mm -hmm. if you think of it in Ansible terms. But you could, one of those key values in the curly brackets could be generated from another list for instance so if oh, right. i don't know if that would make sense to our listeners without drawing a, drawing a diagram in the show notes or something but <laughs> but yeah basically generate fill, uh, yeah something like that fill, filling out having a variable within a variable if you like and and then looping over a list to create another list so to be fair again i've done i've done a fair amount of mangling variables pretty drastically with ansible um and that's not to say that this is any better or worse than than what you know than, than what you can do with salt but i know that um i have ended up doing stuff like um in the vars file doing a for each var var in vars so it's literally listing all of the available variables looking for a specific regex for example interesting yeah mm. and then pulling that very so um the firewall policy stuff that i did two ish years ago so that you could have one policy that was combined from lots of little policies and that you could dynamically include those policies on different firewalls yeah i've got a lot of stuff that pulls read all your variables and look for something that looks like this and then read all your variables and look for something that looks like that. And I mean, again, I'm not explaining it very well, but um, I can stick a link in the show notes to, to the to the regex that I did at the time. To yeah, and the, the looping stuff. Anyway, so it sounds like puppets. <laughs> I mean, again, it's been around for years. Yeah, and I think between puppet and chef, they they were the two kind of initial sort of fully automated config management systems. Yeah. I do remember kind of my 
my first kind of real awareness of Puppet being an interview with um, an inbound CTO, I think, at Puppet. And I've tried looking for this video since then. He was a, it was something like Puppet Comp or something. Um, and he said, you know, before I came to Puppet, I knew nothing about Puppet. Um, and so when I started at Puppet as a CTO, uh, the first thing I did was teach myself Puppet. And the easiest way I found to teach myself Puppet was to wipe my laptop and rebuild it every single day with Puppet. <laughs> oh, God. That is, um, that is an approach. That's all I'm going to say to that. <laughs> So yeah, so like I said, like I said, I I do have a very vivid memory of watching this video. I can't find it. So if any of my dear listeners, my dear listeners, <laughs> our dear listeners out there, um, can uh, can point me to that video, I would love to find that again because I just thought it was such an amazing way of teaching yourself how to use the tools that you are relying on day to day. Yes. Yeah, especially, I mean, the CTO, he, he, he's obviously got to answer some emails as, as part of his position as CTO. So maybe that's the first uh, first thing he'd get installed. <laughs> <laughs> get Mutt installed and go from there and see if you can get to a GUI at some point. You know? <laughs> uh, there, was, there was one more thing on Puppet I was going to mention, which is the orchestration side. Um, as you said, it's the agents are basically contacting a web server and pulling the config from the web server uh, on a, I think it's, well, when I was working with it, it was like every half an hour or, or so, I think. So you can write a configuration, commit it to the, the Puppet master server, and then each, it might not be synchronized when those agents contact the server. So we ended up getting, you know, machines configured on a kind of ad hoc basis. Um, and there was a solution for this at the time, which was M collective, um, which I think used, uh, rabbit MQ or active MQ or something to, right. to, uh, to basically coordinate when, when those runs were happening, but I'm not sure if that's moved on at all. Well, interestingly, I know SaltStack internally uses M zero MQ to manage queuing and stuff yeah. like that. So I wonder if SaltStack, saw that and you almost like built baked it into the product at that mm. point uh, just based on that as an influence so that's an interesting one is there anything like that going on with your setup no it's um we have ours goes on at 50 uh sorry every 15 minutes um it calls back to the puppet server um so we you know generally we will know you know within an hour things should have contacted back and we should know the changes will have happened by that point but it it usually means that you know you're committing code or you know that you know the whole infrastructure is code approach of you know commit um put point out with um git making your changes committing your changes back to the central repository um getting review on that one and then waiting to get that applied but you you know you can obviously log into servers and run the agent manually at that point um to pull the code quicker but in general ours was ours done you know less often so it just means that you know if if you've messed something up and you know you have it's not going to happen immediately to most most of the servers but it also means that you know if if there's a change you don't then have to manually go in and start um applying the change you've just got to wait a little bit and it will be applied yeah, as long as you're okay with waiting and you're not trying to orchestrate everything at a particular yeah. time, then it's it's okay. But yes, it's definitely good for you know. I'm wanting to make overall changes. I'm wanting to update you know the way we're doing something. However, maintenance you usually you know open Tmux, get a load of tabs open in it, um, log into your servers, and then run the puppet agent manually to bring it all all down. So that is probably one of the downsides I find compared to something like SaltStack or Ansible is you can trigger that update by just, um, you know, being on the central server or, you know, running it from wherever you're on Ansible, whether it's your own laptop, whether it's Ansible Tower, whether it's just a central server that has Ansible, but that's where you run it from, you can do that. Whereas with Puppet, it's, it's a little more agent oriented. So you need to go into the agents and make that change. I think that's the one thing I've found a little bit, not difficult to deal with, but, is very different from what I'm used to. I'm not, I'm not able to just go, right, go and make that change. I've got to wait sometimes. It also might not fit into this kind of immutable infrastructure paradigm that we're always going on about, it's it, where you want machines to come up configured, and then when you want to reconfigure them, you you rebuild them. 
Yeah, I mean, I mean, one of one of the things you can do there, at least, is you know, it's quite easy to tell whatever it is. You know, say it's a, an Amazon EC2 or something like that. You can tell it once it's come up to register with the Puppet server, um, and then once it's accepted, and oh yeah, sorry, there's a concept called auto signing. So the way Puppet registers agents with servers is by basically creating a certificate um, signing request. And then the server is the one that signs that to say, yes, you can contact me. You can um, set up something called auto signing and it can be based on domain. It can be based upon facts. It can be based upon all sorts of different things. And then you can say, you know, come up, register with the server. It will be automatically signed. So, you know, that the next time you run the puppet agent, um, you'll be able to pull the config. And then just straight after that, you know, run puppet agent. It's dash T that runs it to do all the configuration changes. So, you know, something like a cloud init file, you can include that and it'll do it. But at the same time, you know, if you're then wanting to say, you know, a couple of minutes later, I want to make a change to it without logging into it, you can't do that. So, yeah, it's it, it's slightly... I don't want to say it hasn't kept up with that, but it's just it came at a time before um, before that kind of thing was happening, which I think there's something called Bolt now in Puppet where it's more, you know, doesn't rely on the Puppet server to make the configuration changes. So I think that's where some of that comes from. It can make the changes itself potentially. Um, but I've, I've not touched Bolt at all. I just know, know of its existence. I mean, you can do things like, uh, as I remember, you, you can just put all the puppet code on the on the client if you like and just run puppet against that rather than having to contact the server as well so it's another way of running it but yeah yeah as i say it's just a slightly different approach to it you don't have the central go out and do or tell the agents to do it's just more wait for them to come in at some point which as i say that's the bit i found probably the most not difficult but i would it, I think it's the one thing I miss. I can't then say, get, you know, I want to make these changes to this. I've got to wait for it to happen um, for the most part. Right. I think I think we might have finished on, on Puppet. <laughs> <laughs> I was going to mention some stuff that I've been doing around some coding recently. So coding's not really something that I do beyond uh, Ansible stuff very often. And I'm just trying to kind of get my hand back into being able to write code. It's partially being driven by some work that I'm doing where we're looking at starting to use architectural decision records or any decision records, which are a simple markdown file format where you define every every time you make a, a decision about a project, you write a simple, a short description that explains what the decision is, why it was made, and what impact that has. And you can do things like supersede things, and you can mark them as being approved or not approved and things like that. But what I've found is that a lot of the tooling around architectural decision records seem to have all been like own itch scratched projects. So someone's decided they want to use architectural decision records in their project, and they've found a tool that works or they've, or they've written something that works, whether it's in uh, Bash or PowerShell. There's a Visual Studio Code module that does does it, for example. And a lot of these projects were written, so architectural decision records were created sometime around about 2011, 2012. And you've seen, you, there's like a, the, there's a, a glut of sort of things that appear kind of in the sort of five or six years after that. And then it all starts to die off. And what what I've found is that all of the, there are bugs in the various tools that create these, uh, that, that basically help you as somebody that wants to implement ADRs in your environment. Um, there's bugs there that, that have got, you know, pull requests to fix or issues have been raised on the bug tracker and there's been no progress on those projects. Now, again, they're all open source stuff. So it's not like I can go around and whilst in theory, I could fork them all and, you know, fix them. One of the problems that you tend to find when you fork a repository, particularly where there's been a community around it in the past, is that the community doesn't tend to follow you. So one of the things that I'm looking to do is actually sort of re-implement these projects and kind of make them the, not necessarily the de facto, because, you know, 
it's very big headed of me to, to assume that everyone's <laughs> going to come along and start using my code. But I'd like to make it so that I can, if I write a PowerShell ADR module or a VS code ADR extension, then because I've still got a vested interest in it, in it working, I should in theory be able to keep, you know, keep making changes or at the very least keep on top of security, security issues or, you know, general coding issues that seems to have sort of plagued this stuff. And so the first one of these that I looked at was um, the bash decision record tooling. So the one that I was using initially was um, called ADR tools by a GitHub user called NPrice. And he's got quite a lot of quite well-written testing suite around it. So the theory being that if you run, if you've got a testing suite um, and somebody makes a change to your code, and it breaks the test. You can see that the test is broken. And so he's written all this, this stuff, but it's using, um, make files. Uh, and so effectively what happens is to run the test, what you do is you do make test and it, it literally creates a directory, sticks all the files in there, runs a command and then compares the output of that command to a text file. And one of the problems that he's come across, or one of the problems that the project has come across, is that the text files contain shell output that shouldn't be there. For example, if you run it on a OS X box, for example, it, it included some commands or some statements as part of starting up the bash shell that wouldn't have been there in the Linux environment that he was perhaps developing in. And so I actually went out and looked for an alternative. Because um, whilst... I really liked the idea of these make file based tests. Uh, it's really complicated to kind of express, you know, why each test exists there and how you can either improve or tweak those tests. So uh, I actually went out and found a um, unit testing script for uh, bash shell called bats, uh, which I think stands for something like bash automated test system. So I've started writing some some simple tests with this and it's really easy to get started on it you literally clone one repository into your tree or you can create it as a submodule and that contains all of your unit testing code at that point i think there are also docker containers and things like that if you want to go down the docker route but from a testing against a specific version perspective including that in your source tree is quite straightforward so you clone that repository into there and you create a file called bats. So, so, um, you know, whatever the test name, uh, whatever the, the suite of tests is that you want to run, uh, dot bats, B-A-T-S. And in there, you just literally just tell it where to find the bats binary, which is in that Git repository you just cloned. And then you do something like, um, at test space, double quotes, the name of the test you're going to run. So say, for example, you might have something like, test to see whether config file exists before installation or something like that. Close double quotes, open curl braces. So it looks a bit like a function, but you can have spaces in that, that text. And then you do things like that. You use the keyword run and then the test that you want it to run uh, the command you want it to run. And then you do um, you use the test function uh, that you have in bash. So open square bracket dollar status minus EQ uh, one close square bracket. And that literally says, um, test to see whether the value of status, which was generated by that run command is equal to the number one. And you can also do a test a dollar output equals equals, and then a string. So you can look for, you, you can look to say, I want to see this exact string uh, in this command. And it's really, it's really straightforward. And it's, it's very similar. If you've done any, any coding with unit testing before, then bats kind of makes a lot of sense. Yeah, interesting. I've done a bit with Golang in the past in terms of unit testing, but not with bash before. So, and it, it's written in bash itself as well, isn't it? Or is it something else that it's written in? Effectively, when you execute the bash, the bats test, if you, if you are, foolish enough like I was earlier today to press uh, to do uh, set minus X, which basically um, dumps all the output. You can see it is running <laughs> a whole shed load of bash commands, right? It doesn't look like it is. It just looks, I mean, it looks like a, a, a function with a couple of tests in, 
and there's some special functions called setup. So if you create that, if you, if you have setup, open brackets, close brackets, curly brace, um, and then, you know, make directory, dollar bats, test directory. Uh, that's from memory. So I, cause I haven't got it on screen at the moment, uh, mm-hmm. slash, you know, some path and then put files into there. That's then set up for all of the files in that, in that test file. Right. And again, it's just running bash commands. So anything that you can do in a bash script, you can do in this, in this bats test. But ideally you want to put more of the logic into the code that you're testing rather than into the, the script that you're writing, the, the test script you're writing, I guess. Yeah. I was, I was just going to ask how complex can it deal with? But yeah, if it's essentially a bash script that you can run as part of it, then I suppose you could pretty much do anything with it. The other thing as well is that, so the bats core, uh, which is the repository that, that you're pointing at, that basically has just got, you know, standard tests and stuff, but there is a whole sort of series of mocks that you can create. And a mock is basically where you say, um, I'm going to ask you to do this thing, uh, but you kind of just return this other thing instead. So you can mock stuff. Now I've not done a lot with that yet, so I don't know how powerful that is, but for example, you could mock having a web server there, for example. So you could mock making a curl request against a URL um, and assume it's going to return a specific string. And then you can use that in your code, for example. Mm. That's quite impressive. There's also specific assert statements. So you can do assert equals uh, assert that this command is a, is going to return true and things like that. So, um, and then literally just run that script and it will do, you know, it will show you, uh, like with any unit testing script, it will show, you know, test uh, named, you know, this is a test, uh, passed test name, this will fail failed and here's the output of why it failed and it will show you all of the all of the past all the failed tests so that's quite quite impressive does it have like a i think you kind of half mentioned it but does it have like a library of existing tests that you can make use of so you know common ones or is it you know kind of it just comes bare as it is and you kind of got to make them yourself Hmm. um so there are some libraries um of additional tests on the whole, what you're basically doing is you're running, you're running a bash script and confirming that, that it returned a particular status code and it returned a particular t- output line of text. Um, even testing that something has come back on standard error, for example, can be a little bit complicated because it captures the standard out, not the standard error. Right. So I suppose you've got to redirect it at that point then to be able to deal with it. Yes. Yeah. Okay. It does sound interesting there. So yeah, so so um, expect to see some blog posts and code from me talking about architectural decision records, hopefully in the not too distant future. But you know, this is me and I'm not very good at <laughs> not very fast at writing code. <laughs> um but yeah, so if you if you are interested in architectural decision records or any decision records, and you're good at writing in a particular language, please let me know, and I'll show you some of the some of the things that I'm looking for uh, for the code to do. Not least, I'd like to include in- internationalization, which none of these things will handle at the moment. They will assume you're going to be speaking English, which isn't great. Yeah. So that's the that's the end of that little bit about bats and uh, and unit testing sh- shell scripts. Stu, there's a thing in here about talking about cloud native versus IaaS. Uh, do you want to give us a sort of heads up on what that's about? Uh, yeah, so it was something that came up during my last role that I was working at. Uh, to explain the difference, cloud native is where what you're building is uh, using tools or applications that are um, provided by the cloud, basically kind of like managed offerings. So if you were to um, run a MySQL database, you might choose an AWS managed one or an Azure managed one or a GCP managed one or whichever cloud you're using so that you don't have to manage the underlying infrastructure. You're just using it as essentially a service at this point. So you can just say, you know, again, it, uh, look at MySQL, you can... Um, 
log into it, you can make a query, you can insert stuff into databases. You're not having to worry about how you scale that database. You're not having to worry about how, what the minimum required, you know, CPU memory and storage requirements are. It's managed by the cloud at that point. Whereas another approach to using the cloud is infrastructure as a service where you're essentially using the cloud as almost like building blocks or almost like just quickly available machines. So the reason that this came up is because the job I was in uh, two jobs ago was very big on using um, we use AWS, so it was if AWS offer uh, this as a service, so whether that was queuing, whether that was a database, whether that was NeoSQL database, where, uh, whatever it was, we would go use the, use the one that AWS provide unless we have good reason not to. My previous place was the opposite, where they said, we will not rely on the cloud provider for anything. We will use them as infrastructure that we, yes, we'll pay for, um, but we can easily use the virtual machines to install what we want on top of. So we will install our own Kubernetes environment. We will install our own our own console servers, our own authentication. So they use HashiCorp's Vault, so we'd use that for secrets management rather than using the AWS provided offering. It was things like that, you know, everything for the most part was what what can we install on it rather than um, what can the cloud provider provide for us. And it just got me thinking as to, you know, two very different approaches to um, how to deploy infrastructure and it, it kind of depends on your viewpoint as to which is the right way to go on it. Um, and, you know, in some cases, uh, one of them's right and the other one isn't. Um, and I suppose as a side point to that is the whole Kubernetes discussion where Kubernetes almost, I don't want to make, say, you know, makes infrastructure ir- irrelevant, but it makes where you are. Um, so, you know, if you're on AWS, if you're in the data center, if you are, um, using DigitalOcean, if you're using Linode, whoever you're using at that point, you're not targeting the cloud APIs and you're not targeting um, saying, I want to deploy on this cloud. You're just saying, I'm deploying on Kubernetes and it doesn't really matter where it is. And I think that was one of the one of the reasons um, my last place went for that kind of view because they had a data center running Kubernetes. So they just went, right, we want to wind down the data center, start using the cloud, use our own Kubernetes on it. And then at that point, it's the same API and the same applications we run. It's just in a place that we can, you know, turn up infrastructure quicker. Yes, it's probably going to cost us, but we can do that. And yeah, as I say, it just brought up a few different, a very different view from um, what was that before. And it just, you know, got a few thoughts running from my head. So have either of you had to deal with that kind of decision before, or do you have a preference or anything like that? Uh, Quite a few things come up in my head. So the big thing is, uh, is, well, maybe vendor lock-in where you, you write your, because you, you still have to configure this stuff. And often you do that through Terraform, these days and then so you end up with a whole load of code to configure even something like kubernetes if you're using one of their managed services uh, and i haven't done i've done aks as you as offering as your kubernetes service i haven't done any other any of the other clouds but i assume while there be there will be similar similarities between those um it's still going to be a, a whole different chunk of code to bring up a cluster in in AWS for instance as to Azure and you know things will be handled differently maybe around certain aspects of that um so so there is that the the thing if you, if you start on AK and if you start on Azure and bring up a load of AKS clusters there's a lot of inertia there that, which will stop you from maybe moving to another cloud to run uh, their managed kubernetes and the same thing probably goes for Manage databases as well. It's funny you should say that, actually, Jerry, because one of the things that I've seen actually in the last week or so was actually a comic that I think it was Google actually put out saying that part of the reason they actually created Kubernetes was because they didn't think... I mean, obviously, they had they had their own tool, internal tooling that, that Kubernetes is loosely based on. But part of the reason they released Kubernetes as open source code was because they thought they'd never be able to break 
the hegemony of, of um, sort of AWS and, and Azure. Um, and so they released Kubernetes to be able to run on those other platforms so that you could move freely between um, AWS, Azure, and, and in theory to the people that have released Kubernetes, GCP. I think the thing with Kubernetes, which may not be true for other managed services, is that they're it's really complicated. So you really want to have a cloud provider managing, you know, taking away some of that complexity, particularly with Kubernetes. With something like a database server, that might not be so much the case. You could, they're, you know, they're kind of more mature in a lot of ways and simpler in a lot of ways as well. In terms of the database side, yeah, it's actually something I saw, um, as I said, the job I was at, not the last one, but the one before, um, migrating some of our MySQL databases was literally a case of um, using something called the database migration service in AWS. And what that basically does is just reads from a table or a, you know entire database, depending on how you structure it, um, wherever you want it, and for it was on, on-prem. And we moved that into a database for an AWS and we just started pointed stuff that way. It seemed to work fine. Um, but yeah, as you say, when Kubernetes, because there's not not running the application itself, but kind of some of the supporting things like, you know, how you manage access. So in AWS, you've got um, the IAM, which is um, Identity Access Management, I believe. And yeah, you use that. There's kind of like a little helper within EKS, which is the AWS version to say this pod, this container wants to assume this role within AWS so that it can talk to these services within AWS. And, you know, obviously that's not going to port to a different cloud because they're going to be using a different provider at that point. However, some of the things like the actual containers themselves is probably very similar, but it, it's more the supporting stuff with Kubernetes that starts to make the difference, I guess, at that point. Yeah, I guess, I mean, with that particular example, in, there is something in Azure, which is basically you deploy some pods into a cluster and it kind of translates the RBAC stuff in Kubernetes to the AAD, Azure Active Directory stuff in Azure, um, which I guess is similar in IAM and EKS. Yes, yeah. It's, um, I know a couple of years ago that that didn't exist natively in AWS, so there was a lot of homegrown versions of it. One of them was called Cube2 IAM, and then there was another one called K-IAM. Yeah, trying to keep forgetting the order, order around on that one. And they were there, and then um, AWS released their own and it essentially superseded them. Um, but yeah, it is basically the same thing to say this role that's within the Kubernetes cluster, translate it to this outside of it. Yeah. There there was another thing, talking about databases and possibly contradicting what I said earlier. When I first, my first sort of cloud role, I came across this really obscure thing where even though on AWS, it's kind of a managed database, you still have to do some stuff with the the database instances that are running like you have to you have to provision them in some ways and it turned out that these db instances were running out of cpu credits so the da- the database <laughs> the database uh, performance went way down and couldn't work out why and it wasn't immediately apparent until you really dug into the the metrics to find out that they'd run out of cpu credits which which is uh yeah n- not a not a kind of well it wasn't well known to me certainly because i'd only been working with AWS for about six months at that point, ever. So, yeah. I suppose that's almost one of the hidden things with AWS is the CPU credits um, thing, because it's we came a cropper of it a couple of times at the job a couple of, let's say, a couple of jobs ago, which was things like if you use what they call the T series of instances, which is their general purpose ones, by default, they have a limited amount of CPU credits. And what that means is you have a certain amount of CPU you can use in a day. And then after that, you get rate limited. Whereas if you use some of the other ones, they don't have this by default, the CPU credits. So I think the C series, the M series, and there's lots of other different ones. They're just different classes of instances, but the T ones tend to be the cheapest ones. But also to go along with that, they're the ones that will run out of CPU quicker because you've got less cpu to use um over the day than if you just you if you use one core of that machine for the entire day the t instances would start rate limiting that because you've run out of what's called cpu credits 
And again, it's the same It's the same that happens with a managed database because essentially in AWS's backend, they're running on similar classes of instances. Um, so yeah, if you're using a T-series one, um, again, you would run into that issue. I suppose on a similar part to that as well is they did something called serverless, serverless databases. Um, and the idea is rather than saying you want this amount of provision credits um, or you know provision capacity, as they call it, um, the database should scale up. So at that point, you know, you find that your queries are taking longer or they're, you know, using up a lot of CPU. What should happen is then go, right, I'll make some more capacity available. It will cost you more while you need it. And then it will scale back down. The problem we found with that was it will not scale up until the, until the queries are finished. But the problem is the queries that weren't finishing needed the extra CPU to complete. So, they never scaled up, so you had to have almost like a minimum level of of yeah credits at which uh, sorry of provision capacity. At which point it was less um, less financially viable than just having dedicated capacity anyway. So yeah, it was an interesting one. But presumably, the the whole reason for having that scale up is because you are so for, if you've got a, uh, like a query that says you know select star from very big table and you're waiting for it to finish churning back the results surely if you were to spin up another node at that point that would be able to handle your second query which might be you know select select one record from small table but it's not going to give the that that initial select star from very big tables not going to receive any benefit because yeah. effectively it, it would be a whole new server that is being stood up purely just to, to, to provide the access to that database. So that's why it's not doing that. Yeah, exactly, which is, you know, exactly why we found that some of the queries that we're trying to run on it, most of the time we didn't need capacity, but the moment we started, it, it was it was like one of them where, um, you know, it was needed at peak times, but then peak times it couldn't handle <clears throat> being at the lowest capacity. So at which point you had to have a minimum level of capacity to deal with the peak times, at which point you may as well just had a um, you know a pre-provisioned capacity in the first place because yeah we, we were getting to the point where we was having to set it at the max capacity and it was costing more than any instance you could have that what that was pre-provisioned so yeah um, that, that was an interesting find that one to say the least which point we just gave up on that it just goes to show that serverless isn't actually serverless it's that you start mm-hmm. to worry about the service. <laughs> In some ways. Yeah. Well, and, and unfortunately, I mean, it's, it's not that it was a bad name for serverless, but effectively it's not saying there's no server there. It's saying, I don't care about the server that runs this code. So it's not that it's not, there's no server, it's that it doesn't care about the server. Anyway, you said you wanted to discuss kind of the, the, the broader idea about cloud native versus IaaS anywhere. And I, I, I was kind of listening and I didn't want to interrupt the rabbit hole you were kind of, you ended up going down, but I had two kind of thoughts on this. The first is that there's um, a great pair of books by a guy called Gene Kim called The Unicorn Project and The Phoenix Project. And The Unicorn Project actually mentions something that is quite relevant to this, which is the idea of core and context. So this is how you kind of refer to various services that you're you're consuming or using a core service is one that earns your company money so that might be you know your ticketing system earns your company money and all the time that that is something that you are controlling so say for example you've got very favorable rates with a credit card uh, processor and you've got your particularly good rates with currency exchange or those sorts of things, you know, you've got, you, you're hardlined into, um, you know, the tax collecting people, whether that's HMRC or, you know, IRS or whatever, then that's classed as core. But the moment you can outsource and, and, and hand that stuff off to someone else, it becomes context. And context is a service that doesn't make your company money. It's something that uh, provides support to, the core functions of your company. And effectively, one of the things that Gene mentions in his book is that whilst it may at one point have made you money having, you know, a rack full of servers, host and data center, at the point at which you've got a managed database service, that is 
arguably in some cases costing you less money or an equivalent amount of money to the amount of money you might have been paying for it in the data center. The moment you factor in the fact that you're not running the backups on that server because it's a managed back, got a managed backup service, for example, or you've not got somebody that's running uh, patch updates on that box because it's running on a server that's managed by AWS or Azure or, you know, insert name of other cloud hosting provider here. You cut out all of the costs for you around keeping people employed doing that particular task. You cut out the, the cost of what happens when that person goes off sick or isn't there and the next person has to skill up on how to do that thing or you have to write a whole load of code that will do that thing for you. So from that perspective, I can see why the decision to be entirely cloud native is a very attractive perspective. On the other hand, there are companies like the Duckbill Group, for example, who their whole job is going through your AWS bill and seeing where they can cut costs for you. And that's because the native services are not free. And some companies will look at the fact that they've got 10 people working in an IT team and they'll say, we've already got 10 people here, so why don't we give them the job of managing that server and we get that service for free then? So they're kind of turning it on the other, on their head and sort of saying, you know, why do we need to pay AWS or Azure to host a database server when we can just run up an Ubuntu server, which we're paying £3 a month for an Ubuntu, you know, £3 a, a, an hour for, for an Ubuntu server because that's the that's the infrastructure costs. And we've got a TV, team of DBAs anyway, so why do we need to pay a DBA to run the database? Oh, so why do we need to pay AWS to, to run the database for us when the DBA can do it for us instead? So that was that thing. The other thing I was going to say is that one of the problems a lot of companies have when they get approached by a cloud vendor or a partner of a cloud vendor who's trying to encourage them to move to cloud is that they are tempted to do a lift and shift, which is literally virtualizing their their existing data center full of servers and uploading those images into the cloud, whether that's AWS, Azure, or whoever, and then running that, that workload in the cloud without doing any transformation at all. And initially, when people were talking about IaaS, infrastructure as a service, what a lot of people assumed that meant was rehoming your data centers workloads in AWS and Azure. And one of the downsides to that is you rapidly start spending an awful lot of money. Oh, yes, yes. Because if you do no transformation at all in your workload, your data center, you currently probably have got, or you may have had 10 web servers providing a load balanced web service with 10 database servers sitting behind it because that's what your workload needed at its peak time. With cloud, you can scale up a service from two nodes to 10 nodes in anywhere from a few minutes to an hour. And then as soon as that workload spike has gone down, you can automatically scale it back down again, whether that's with a scale set or even just a script that is manually polling, not manually, but you know, is, is programmatically polling the load on your database server, your web server, whatever, to say, I need to scale up now, or you know, just time of day, amount of traffic, number of hits coming in. There is very much a mentality. And, and again, I know that I work quite a lot with, you know, large enterprise who are somewhat struggling with the idea of moving from on premise to cloud, but they need to, they need to understand that you can't just lift an application and put it into the cloud and A, assume it's going to carry on working the way it was and B, it's going to save you money. Cause in the long run, not doing that transformation will not save you money. Yeah. Just uh, as a bit of an addendum to what you're saying, John, there's also in AWS and uh, I think all the all the major clouds actually, there's a notion of spot instances, which is um, instant, which is basically VMs that are available at kind of eighty percent markdown or something. Uh, to what, what so you can get a really uh, chunky VM, lots of CPU and RAM for not much money. But the, the downside is they can go away at any time. So you, you could have a workload that you, you don't care if it goes away, um, but you need quite a big server for it. Um, 
and so you you just have a like a like a worker machine or something running it, and it could go away but then you could just bring up another one and so it ends up costing you a bit uh, quite a bit less this is particularly useful with kubernetes because kubernetes can handle that kind of um nodes nodes uh, disappearing and coming coming back in into circulation and so on so you can you can it is possible i've seen it done haven't done it myself i'd like to uh, run a really cheap really big kubernetes cluster yeah we we started doing a little bit of that at my last place and um yeah some of the op- open shifts i didn't entirely handle it well but it, it was there and it did work for some use cases um so uh, as a point on the spot instances the entire point behind it is Let's take AWS. AWS have a lot of capacity. They have a lot of servers. You know, they are a data center provider in a, in a way, in the way that you know they're trying to make it so you're not anymore. The, the entire point in spot instances, there's they have unused capacity, which right now is not giving them any money at all. Even if they sell it cheap to you, you know, at um, a significantly reduced cost, it's still recouping some cost for them and uh, for running the infrastructure at all hence why they're available but then it does mean that someone comes along and now wants that capacity well you're no longer the priority get get them out of there you get look you know you get a little graceful time they will tell you that this instance is about to go away so you can do whatever you need to close down your job whatever you're doing and then at that point um, that capacity will go to whoever requested it and essentially paid more for it um, at that point um, you know paid to have it um, on demand as they call in AWS but essentially provisioned at that point rather than just you know whatever's left in a sense that's something that only came about because of the cloud though and and yeah. cloud native technologies running on the cloud allow you to actually utilize it uh, for for your work i was just going to mention something on john's point as well in terms of um one of the other things um that um ss again especially from the last place we noticed a lot of people expected to go back to um when they had a server in AWS or wherever, they expected to have the same kind of thing as in a data center, which was a lot of unused resources. So, you know, you'd have 16 cores, but you're only using one or two of them because you bought the box that has 16 cores or 32 cores or whatever. Whereas when you're in AWS, more often than not, if you only need one core and you only need 512 meg of memory for your application, that's the size of VM you're going to be using. It was that almost was that one of the biggest changes in mindset um, at uh, at them as well was no, your alerts that you have to say I'm at 80% CPU capacity. Actually, that's what's supposed to happen now. You're supposed to be running at the edge of this one because we don't want to pay for unused capacity anymore. That's the point of it. But also, you know, historically, uh, that place was also very Java-based. Java is very memory-hungry in general. Um, and a lot of them were used to having, you know, th- this is a small application. It only uses four CPUs and 16 gigs of RAM. And, I'm, and you sat there going, that's not a small thing when you're getting into the cloud world, especially when you're throwing a, you know, if you're using Kubernetes and you're throwing a pod that's that big in there. That's just, you know, it'd be one of the biggest pods on there. And, it, you know, if you've got a worker node that's only got 32 gig of RAM to begin with, it can only serve one container at that point because it's also got to run its um, other ones there. And it was the idea of getting across, split this service up, split it into the components that it needs to make it so you can spread it across multiple nodes. And then, you know, if one of the nodes goes away, it doesn't take your entire application with it, it just takes part of it. And it's, again, it's the reshaping, it's the transforming, it's changing your application to fit that model rather than, you know, picking up and going, well, I always had four CPUs and 16 gig RAM before, so that's what I'll go with. But then you start looking at usage patterns of the application and it uses nowhere near that. But they were just used to having a virtual machine or even a dedicated server that had that kind of capacity. They just went, well, that's what I've always had. So it's what I also want in the cloud. And it's that just, you know, that's a bit of a change in thinking as well. And with that, I think we're, we're probably quite close to the end of the end of tonight's show. So I would like to thank uh, Dave Lee, who does all our audio production. Dave Lee is part of the Other Side Podcast Network, which we are proud members of. And you might want to have a look at otherside.network to see some of the other podcasts that are on the network. Uh, I'd like to thank our patron, uh, Patreons, patron, patrons, um, who uh, basically pay our bills. Uh, they are Stuart, not that one, Stuart, that one. Maha, Andamo, Mike, 
Yannick and Dave. Thanks, guys. And uh, yes, if you want to send any feedback on this episode, any other episodes that we've had um, to tell us, um, you know, something you want to hear, whether we're wrong, we probably are on some things, on possibly a lot of things. But yeah, if you want to send any feedback, it's mail at admin adminpodcast.co.uk. And if you go to admin adminpodcast.co.uk, you also see the show notes for the podcast as well. So anything we talk about, we also um, have um, links to anything we've talked about as well. And um, if you want to join our Telegram group, that's also linked in the show notes for this um, podcast and also on our website as well so one last thing to mention obviously is that if you've got any questions that you want us to answer uh, you can contact us by email or you can ask the question in our telegram group and we'll try and answer it in one of our near shows so with that i think uh, i think we've come to the end so uh, it's good night from me good night from me and good night from me No one did the good night from him. No, no. no. I was so tempted, but I thought, no. Probably trademarked. Yeah. You've been listening to a member of the Other Side Podcast Network. Find more about our shows at otherside.network. Other Side.